So I read from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. Are we ready? Let us receive the word of God. But Christ has appeared as the high priest of the good things that have happened. He passed through the greater and more perfect meeting tent, which isn't made by human hands. That is, it's not a part of this world. He entered the holy of holies once for all by his own blood, not by the blood of goats or calves, securing our deliverance for all time. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkled ashes of cows made spiritually contaminated people holy and clean, how much more will the blood of Jesus wash our consciences clean from dead works in order to serve the living God? He offered himself to God through the eternal spirit as a sacrifice without any flaw. This is why he's the mediator of a new covenant, which is a will, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance on the basis of his death. His death occurred to set them free from the offenses committed under the first covenant. When there is a will, you need to confirm the death of the one who made the will. This is because a will takes effect only after a death, since it's not in force while the one who made the will is alive. So not even the first covenant was put into effect without blood. Moses took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the law scroll itself and all the people after he had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people. While he did it, he said, This is the blood of the covenant that God established for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the meeting tent and also all the equipment that would be used in the priest's service with blood. Almost everything is cleansed by blood according to the law's regulations. And there is no forgiveness without blood being shed. So, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be cleansed with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things had to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. Christ didn't enter the holy place, which is a copy of the true holy place, made by human hands, but into heaven itself, so that he now appears in God's presence for us. He didn't enter to offer himself over and over again like the high priests enters the like the high priest enters the holy the earthly holy place every year with blood that isn't his. If that were so, then Jesus would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. Instead, he has now appeared once at the end of the ages to get rid of sin by sacrificing himself. People are destined to die once and then face judgment. In the same way, Christ was also offered once to take on himself the sins of many people. He will appear a second time, not to take away sin, but to save those who were eagerly awaiting him. The word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. Please pray with me and please pray for me. God, may you speak to us now. May you whisper to our hearts. May the words of my mouth, may they be yours. May the meditations of our hearts, may they be yours. And may they be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay. Sometimes I just get really excited about a sermon. This is one of those times. And Dan and Kathy, who are from 
previous church I served know that that could be trouble. But uh, here we go. Seatbelts fastened? All right. I want to begin. I want to offer you a picture of something, but the picture is, is more in our world, and the idea is to ask a question that may challenge you to try to embrace a new reality that's just difficult to embrace so that we can go and visit the Scripture, which is written to a people in first century, and an idea is presented for the people to embrace that would have been similarly difficult. But we aren't from that first century world, so we're going to have a hard time making sense of it unless we have a way for us to kind of understand the difficulty. You with me? Okay. So, in 1928, uh, I was told the name of this, the kellogg uh, Briand Act. Has anyone ever heard of it? It was enacted that every country would commit that war would never take place again. 1928, after the, the, the war to end all wars. Of course, we know that that's not how reality went. But what if somebody announced an act today that said there will never again be war or violence of any kind ever? And it were true. Would we believe it? Would we even know what to do with ourselves if we did? In 2018, the U.S. government budgeted, let me get my number right, $639 billion for the military spending. All right, a lot of money. It increased by 8% from last year. And if it increases again in 2021, it'll be $800 billion. Okay? So think of the future budgeted money ready to spend. Um, what would we do if we no longer needed that money? Because there were to be no more war. No need for the military. No need for defense. Let's just start with something small. If we can't wrap our heads around the reality, what would we do with $800 billion? Yeah, that's kind of, oh my goodness. We could do lots of things with that money. Did you know that we will spend roughly, get my numbers right, $70 billion on education budgeted in the federal government this year and $200 billion next year for veteran benefits. So that's $270 billion. We could take the $800 billion and double education and veteran benefits. Actually, we could take that doubled number and double it again. Wouldn't that be amazing? What would that do for the world of education if our children had more support? What would it do for our veterans, the people that have said yes and have come back not completely whole if we took care of them? Doesn't that sound like a, a, a beautiful way to see our money spent? Now, I'm not offering political opinion on the military budget. I'm simply saying the big amount and just, just that alone, what we could do if there was no more war it's kind of mind-blowing. And what would your life look like? Would you worry as much as you worry now? Would we blast each other on Facebook as much as we do now? How much we invest of our time and energy into the fact that we deal with violence and war, whether it comes in the form of countries fighting, whether it comes in the form of somebody showing up at a, at a bar, or whether it shows up in fire, destruction, and the many ways we see it impact our lives. What would life be like if there were no more war or violence ever again? We can't even fathom it. Okay, so now you're in this place of, I don't know. Let me bring you into the world of Hebrews, okay? I'm set that aside. So what happened in Hebrews is a book is written in the context of first century sacrificial temple religion, and Jesus is explained through that lens. Are you with me? So I'm going to explain to you what in the world he's talking about when he's talking about tents 
and holy of holies, because you may not know. So back in Moses' day, God said, I'll be with you all. I'll be with my people in the wilderness. And the way I'm going to be with them is I'm going to give them the law, which is how to live, the Ten Commandments. And then God said, build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle, or a tent, or what later is called a temple, was constructed so that there was a room you could enter into, the priest would accept your sacrifice, and then once everyone was clean, cleansed through the blood, the priest then would take one sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, the inner room where God's presence dwelt, to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. Okay? And that would happen once a year. Our sanctuary is set up similarly. So we have a space where the priest is, or in this case a pastor, who stands and does things, who says things, who offers ideas, and you come and present yourself, and we do something here. But then we have an even more special place that's elevated even more than that special place that has the altar, has even well, the screens covering it, but we have, I'm just going to raise the screen real quick. We have the presence of God pictured in the eternal flame above. We have the cross and the flames below. This symbolizes that God's presence is here, and it's a similar idea to what was going on in first century. So what would happen is, if you were a good first century person, your representative of your family, and it just needed one person, was generally the father, would bring an animal to the priest. If you were really rich, you'd bring a, a, a bull. If you were middle class, you'd bring a lamb. And if you were lower class, like Mary and Joseph, they bring a bird. And they would come to the priest. The priest would then sprinkle blood on you or do something to make you clean enough to then come into the part where the sacrifice is made. Would sacrifice you and the blood is showing that you acknowledge that you haven't been faithful and blood needs to be spilled. God provides the blood according to the story of Abraham and Isaac, provides the blood that then we can be cleaned, and then the priest would take part of the meat and give it to you, and you would go with your family and have a meal. And the other part of the meat would place upon the first altar and burn it, and the smoke would rise, and God would consume. So God's consuming your offering while you are consuming the offering, and you are in communion with God. Beautiful, isn't it? And then once a year, only once a year, the priest would come in, offer a sacrifice for himself, be cleansed, and then they'd put a rope around him, and he'd go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain in the Temple Jerusalem and would offer a sacrifice on, in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God for all of Israel. And they would wait to see if the sacrifice was accepted. All right? If it wasn't accepted, if the priest died, because that would mean it wasn't accepted, remember that rope? They'd pull him out. Because you don't want to go in there if you're not found acceptable to God. So once he did what he went in to do, he would emerge and say, God has found the offering acceptable. And it would be the Day of Atonement and everyone would celebrate. And they'd wait till the next year to do it again. Are you with me? This is, a, this is not how we do things. But it gives you an idea of why we structure some of our buildings in that way. So Hebrews is trying to tell the world a first century sacrificial temple religious people that Jesus did so much more than the priests could ever do. Because the priests offered sacrifices all the time and every year the Day of Atonement, always. Always blood being spilled, got a little smelly, which is why they're always burning incense. No joke. Hebrews says, when Jesus died, Jesus entered into the heavenly temple 
the one that any temple we've ever seen or just a, a shadow of. Jesus then entered the Holy of Holies before the presence of God, and Jesus is both the priest who was without sin and is also the sacrifice. And if Jesus walks in to offer sacrifice and has no sin, then we know that he's offering it on our behalf. Does that make sense? Now, another thing. <laughs> Stick with me. This is really layered and complicated. They would have gotten all this. We're having, we may have trouble. When Moses prepared the tent and the priests and the people, he took blood and he, he threw blood on them all, sprinkled blood, and gave them all a blood bath. All right? You know that term? And then sprinkled the temple itself. Spread blood everywhere because it's the blood that cleanses and purifies. And then took the, the instruments and everything that was going to touch anything to do with the sacrifice and covered it in blood because blood cleanses to make the temple sacred. Now think of what the Hebrews writer is saying. Jesus brings in a better blood into the heavenly temple. Does the heavenly temple need to be cleansed? Why is Jesus cleansing a temple in heaven? Because one day we will stand in the temple and Jesus has already cleansed it for when we arrive. And the Hebrew writer says, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Or what, he, what we're waiting for is Jesus to emerge from the Holy of Holies that we may all come and join him. It's a really powerful image. It's a really strange way to tell the story of Christ's death. And what is really being said is that there has been the one sacrifice needed. The only one ever needed has occurred already occurred and it has been accepted once and for all no longer do we need to bear the weight of sin and death it's maybe a little different than we're used to hearing the story same words but maybe a different idea and i think that's the point of the hebrew writer so what a message right what good news so what what's this mean uh how hard do you think it was for the first century people to go, oh, okay, no more sacrifice then. We'll stop investing our time and our money and our, our effort and our whole worldview around the way that the only way we've ever known. It would have been very difficult, maybe as difficult as us embracing the idea of the Kellogg Briand Act, which we didn't embrace. The whole idea of sacri sacrificial religion isn't needed. And, and the beauty that came with the sacrificial religion is that when you're given the law, God says, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Here's how you live. It's great because we know now, but at the same time, if you're like me, you're like, yeah, I don't live like that. And I really struggle to live like that. So as much as I'm grateful to know what it is, I'm also very well aware of my inability to do it. So God said, let me give you the tabernacle that you may become and be cleansed and know that we commune together despite your inability to do what it is you know you should do. So there's a, a worry and a relief with the sacrificial system. But Jesus said, it's done. It is accomplished. The worry, no more. Because I've accomplished all that ever was needed to be accomplished. And the particular way that he said it 
says it's been done and it will never need doing again. It will forever be in a state of accomplished or doneness. So we are waiting for Jesus the priest to emerge and invite us in. And we're waiting for that glorious day. And we are in this in-between period, right? This end of one age and the beginning of another. So what does this mean? Well, I want to, you know, there are many ways to approach our faith in Christianity. Many ways you've been taught. Many ways that you've heard and maybe found one that spoke to you. Um, But I want to talk about one that's very prominent. And we're going to start there. And then you can take this message and, and go with it wherever you feel led. So we sometimes approach this faith as if we define our existence on the fact that we don't measure up. And we stop there. And we sit with this message that we don't measure up, that we are sinful, that we are broken, that we are fallen, and there's nothing we can do about that on our own, which is true. However, that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. It's as if, as we talked last week, creation... And Genesis 1 and 2 is this, everything's good, right? God made all this goodness for us, for God, paradise. And then, yes, we fell and rejected and said we can do better. That's true. But sometimes we forget to tell the first part of the story. How were you presented the story of our faith? Did it start with fallenness and brokenness, or did it start with goodness? How do you tell the story of your faith? Does it start with brokenness, or does it start with goodness? How do you tell it to yourself? And then sometimes we just kind of skip past Genesis all the way to the story of Jesus and the cross, that Jesus died for us, and we accept that and acknowledge his resurrection, and then we stop there. And while this is very true, but we don't stop there, do we? The death of Jesus is vitally important, and the way the Hebrew writer explains the death tells us a lot about what God wants for us and how God gave of God's self for us. And we are constantly aware of how we fall short, but you ever beat yourself up and just think, I'll never measure up. And you carry around your guilt and your shame, and it weighs you down, and I can never do anything anyway, so I'm stuck. Are you, if you're in that faith, if you're focused on your sin, and you're carrying your guilt, and you're fostering shame, and you're fixated on how you don't measure up, and you fear God will reject you, and you fear meeting Jesus when he'll play your entire life before your eyes so you can relive every moment that you fell short once again and then turn around and tell somebody that this is good news. We, we sell it short, don't we? That's just part of the story. Instead, consider the image of the Hebrew writer is that Jesus is waiting to invite us into the eternal presence of God and has already taken care of everything that needs to happen for that to occur. We still have to say yes and follow, yes. But the blood of the Lamb has already been accepted by God. We're now made clean in and through that blood. Our lives spent embracing this truth, our lives lived at the presence of God within us, which is the whole point. We call it the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit cleanses us just like the blood was supposed to cleanse. The Spirit cleanses within like the blood cleansed outwardly. And we even drink the blood of Christ in communion, right? Taking in the blood to signify the cleansing that takes place. To acknowledge the truth, we are both forgiven and living a life of being perfected. So that, and here's the good news I want you to hear, so that you know that forgiveness is an already accomplished reality. 
And you can live into confidence, into the mercy of God, who comes to meet us in Jesus Christ. And it announces good news for all who fear death and the prospect of standing before God, who indeed judges all of us, yes? But the judge is none other than the Savior. And when we think about what that means, it changes things. If we live into the reality of the victory that's already happened over sin and death, if we no longer fear judgment, what kind of wonderful things can we do with our life that peace we've been investing in fear and worry and judgment. If we could truly accept the good news and stop worrying about how we don't measure up, stop worrying about how other people don't measure up, we could shed this burden of guilt and shame, no longer live in fear. What kind of life would that be like to live? It might be one of dancing and singing and joy and love and light. A forgiven life grounded on the victory of Jesus Christ. So accept the good news offered by, this, by the author of Hebrews that Jesus has done all that's necessary. It's done. He accomplished it 2,000 years ago and one day will emerge from the heavenly temple to bring us before the presence of God through all eternity. Through Jesus Christ, we already have victory. So go and live victoriously. Amen? Amen.